like to rock, zombies like to roll, but I dig the stomp cause it's good for the cell. On a graveyard prowl late one night, I tripped on a body and got quite a fright. As my fear subsided, my anger grew, I proceeded to stomp with the heel of my shoe. It keeps Janusz alive, it makes Frankie jive, and it's mine all mine. What's up, decomposers? Ah, welcome back to Punk Lotto Pod. I am your co-host. I didn't think of a spooky name, Justin Hensley. Uh, and I am your other co-host, Diane Dillon. <laughs> uh, we are in week three of our Halloween spooktacular celebration, and it is the final in our trilogy of horror that we have introduced this this year. A recurring theme that we have done the first two years of the show, stopped doing for two years, and then brought back in the fifth year. So we'll see if we remember to do this again next year, whenever it's time to talk about spooky records again. But how are we feeling about this? How did how did we how did this time around go compared to our first two runs at this style? I better, I think. I'm trying to remember what we talked about. I felt like the second time we did it, we did it pretty well and because i don't think that it was like i don't think we did such a bad job of it or it was such a hard experience that we were like oh let's not do that again that we just completely forgot to do it yeah yeah uh it was just poor purely poor planning on our part <laughs> for the last two years that we didn't do it certainly this time has been better than the first time we did it uh it was more of a question going into the second time that we did it that it was like uh, that was should we have done that? <laughs> I think the second time we did it, we did a lot more, too. We did like five weeks, I think. Yeah, we did do too much the second time. Yeah. So I think doing three based on the three styles, very similar to our ska guest where we chose like the three different waves of ska that were touched by punk music. It worked doing it this way. So I guess next year we could just alternate what we chose uh, as far as the like, since this year you picked our psychobilly record, next year I would pick the psychobilly record and, and vice versa for the horror punk. And Yeah, I we remember that. Gothic, gothic rock. Uh, we'll, we'll still both be picking a gothic record, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to do with goth rock. It's an interesting it's an interesting genre. It's a genre that like you can listen to year round and it doesn't feel like you're listening to Halloween music in January, you know? Yeah, yeah. We can we could branch it out. We can do like what we talked about. A second ago, before we started recording, we could throw Gothic Country in the mix. Yeah. Um, it's enough of a genre, I guess. People talk about it. I don't know. It's not really a punk genre, though, I guess. That's the other. Yeah. But, but how? Well, Gothic Rock is big. Yeah, Gothic Rock's pretty big. So it is almost enough of its own thing. But yeah, it certainly has its uh, roots in post-punk coming from the same scene from its origin. So it kind of makes sense. But yeah. Before we get into that, though, if you head on over to our Patreon, you get access to all of our weekly bonus audio. And this week, you can check out the extra scary chart dive we did on the uh, Hot 100 of albums released in 1985. Nothing remotely spooky on that list at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The (laughs) twist is uh, the real horror was all that 80s power ballad. (laughs) uh but if you do want to see what else we've done halloween related over there you can check out our bracketology episode where we discussed 
horror movie themes where you pitted those head to head. And then you could check out the Master Punk Theater that we did on The Craft, the 90s teen horror drama. So we did some Halloween themed Patreon yeah, yeah. content for you. Yeah, we just phoned it in on the last one. So. Yeah, we were really more following our pattern of uh, just what we do next and uh, didn't <laughs> didn't consider that there's, oh, there's not really anything spooky about this list at all. But yeah, that's patreon.com slash punklottopod. One dollar gets you access to all of the bonus audio we have out there that includes those audio we mentioned, the new release updates that I put out every week. And uh, if you're interested in more, there's a $10 tier where you get to select the album we devote an entire episode to. So check that out. One time $10 donation gets you a whole episode of the main feed devoted to a record you want us to talk about. So back to our gothic rock discussion. So what is it? It's it's a weird genre because it's... Yeah, which is very much a conversation to have in relation to the album that we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. But to to define it loosely, I think it is as much of a made-up genre as horror punk is. It doesn't <sighs> have it doesn't have as nearly a defining sound as you would think. No, because a lot of the main traits of gothic rock that you think of are just derivative of post-punk. Like that's most of it is very much like a post-punk thing to begin with. Yeah. I was looking at um, how rate your music defines it because uh, I branched off of the album that we're talking about. And I was like, because someone there was like, where's the Gothic rock actually? I know where it is, but, (laughs) but kind of, it's one of those things. It's one of those genres where like even rate your music. They're just like, it's mostly just rock music with gothic imagery. And then it kind of goes on to describe heavy use of synths, chorus and echo, you know, jangly, twangy guitars. Like, well, that kind of defines a lot of music, describes a lot of music in the 80s. So, I mean, as far as is it a sound that goth rock bands continue to use past the 80s? I think describing those production choices Signing those production choices to the genre makes sense because generally gothic rock, goth rock bands, especially like very more recent ones in the last 10, 15 years, I think have made deliberate production choices hearkening to the sounds of classic gothic rock bands. But if you're if you're going by like, you know, the time period where it really formed as a genre, it's just 80s bands. Yeah, I guess it's just like people tend to I guess like the biggest, the most famous bands that tend to be tagged gothic rock are The Cure and Susie and the Banshees. Bauhaus. Bauhaus, yeah. Joy Division to a degree. I don't really fully agree with that. Well, Um, see, that's the thing. Like if you like on a textural basis, even melodically, like Joy Division works as a goth band like um morose lyrics dark imagery you know post-punk musically even you know uh, dark minor somber melodies and chord progressions certainly a huge influence on their um, their contemporaries and a lot of bands that came after them that would call themselves goth rock i mean i think their i think joy division is probably more important as a post-punk band 
but the sonic i think the sonic similarities are there and the influences there on goth rock that i see why goths love them yeah yeah that's true i guess if you think about what goths listen to yeah that actually kind of opens it up a little bit more to wider wider ranges of stuff more stuff that i think people would just call post-punk but yeah which it really is it really is just like it's just post-punk with a slightly more emphasis on dark lyrics and themes yeah it's again it's another genre based on lyrics that uh why are we doing that why are we doing that (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i i it's one that it's one that works better than horror punk per se and like Going with, you know, the the other genres in our formula, our quadrant of spooky music, it's one where the lyrical basis for the genre does directly influence the songwriting. Like the themes in and imagery aren't incongruous with the sound like they're like, yes, these are going to be minor key. We're going to do lots of like, you know, these close melodies and intervals and and. Uh, it's going to sound dark and scary and sad. So like, whereas horror punk is just like, it could be like the misfits were just doing fifties rock and roll (laughs) meets the Ramones singing about monsters. Yeah. Uh, the music sounds happy as hell. (laughs) (laughs) And psychobilly is just a, whatever that is like that's its own thing. (laughs) It's, it's no more sad or morose than rockabilly. You know, it's just like, right. We just sing about vampires and, and uh, ghouls riding hot rods. I mean, like, my baby's got a bridal Frankenstein hairdo. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it, yeah, I guess Gothic Rock has more of a like we stick to a sound versus those two that are just like AFI is also a horror punk band. So it's <laughs> like, OK, that's more lyrical themes than anything, whereas Gothic Rock actually does have kind of a, a a congruent sound that is used throughout different genres. I do think something like gothic metal, like that's an extra, extra defined sound. Yeah. Like that is, you're not going to get, you're not going to be like, well, it's very similar to, no, no, no. It, it's its own thing. Well, and, and, and like gothic metal is like very heavily influenced by classical music. They're like, they're fully leaning into the classical symphonic, yeah. you know, side of metal. And, which there, there's like there's tons of musical basis for like defining it because it's like yeah we're going by all of the classical standards of like of modes and shit that are like <laughs> have been used in Western musical canon to be sad sounding. I mean, I guess sounding. I guess there's like dark wave, which is like a spinoff of gothic rock, which also does borrow heavily from classical as well. Yeah. Um. There's even industrial. I think industrial is a a spinoff, I guess it's a spinoff of post-punk, but it also tends to be dark in a way that goth rock is also dark. Yeah. And there's even, I think there's a good folk music basis for goth rock, musically speaking. When you think about particularly UK origins of goth rock to where they're drawing from lots of traditional English, Irish music mm-hmm. that yeah. is very like mournful and you know modal you know it's, it's it's not it's not major it's not really minor key either but yeah they're they're influenced by those kinds of melodies and but but you don't you don't necessarily have to sound like Susie 
right to be a goth band you don't necessarily have to do kind of off-key vocals you don't have to sound like a ghoul (laughs) (laughs) your songs don't even have to be particularly sad yeah sounding to be considered goth rock as again we will get into but (laughs) yeah yeah so with horror punk and with psychobilly Dylan and I each took turns deciding what album to choose to talk about. And with Gothic Rock, we were like, well, let's go a little more consensus. And I threw a couple at you just to see, just to kind of like gauge where you were on stuff you were considering. So one that I, the first one I threw out, I, I threw out Floodland by the Sisters of Mercy. We got the And one, that's a really fun record. It is very goth rock. Probably more, probably the, one of the more bombastic goth rock bands. Like, they're not doing the same thing that The Cure and Susie and the Banshees are doing. Like, there's, like, pow- a lot more power behind, like, the songwriting there. More high energy. More in common with some new wave stuff, too. Yeah. But yeah, I, I thought Sisters of Mercy would be a good example. Probably They're probably one of the the next bands in the goth rock sphere besides your, your first couple. I did also, I considered concrete blondes bloodletting. Concrete Blonde are weird, right? Like they're they're even weird for goth rock, right? Yeah. Concrete Blonde is a weird band. They're yeah. that one I see why they get goth connections associations, but I don't know that I would even really properly classify them as a goth rock band. They really feel one of a kind. Like I I really can't think of any other bands that I could say sound like concrete blonde really swinging for a lot of big ideas (laughs) yeah they're definitely very interesting and that's kind of why i was thinking of them as an option just because how different it would be because you could always go the safe route and pick something that's just like very post-punky very suzy very you know along those lines and so i was looking at stuff that was a little different uh my third option was the lords of the new church band that we were not familiar with until we did the was it the irs bracket is that where we really kind of became no knowing who they were yeah this was Steve baiters of the dead boys post dead boys band uh wound up appearing in that uh the movie tape heads that we uh <laughs> we covered for a master punk theater probably the longest running thing that Steve baiters worked on but i've never heard anything by them that i was like this is really good. I think we should do them. Like I, I chose it mainly out of this is here too. <laughs> and it's a little different. Like I've not heard anything by them that I was very, very like, wow, that song's great. But maybe if we dug into it, we'd found something. Lords of the new church would have been a, at least one to 
get into the conversation a little more of is this death rock i could see that one yeah a case being made for that death rock is the most underrepresented yeah sound in our collection here well it's like as quasi definable as like as as uh gothic rock is death rock is even more is it just just that scene that's really death rock is it like is it a scene based yeah genre uh and i kind of hate those <laughs> that's not a scene that's not a genre that's scene what you're telling me is that you all just copied each other <laughs> uh which is very la too um paisley underground hair metal everyone always just copies each other it's kind of a big city thing too i guess but yeah. la la very especially like to do it hardcore is like la hardcore is a lot of copycats but yeah death rock is do i have to have a death hawk to be in a death <laughs> rock band i've also always mentally even though it's not really the case i've tied death rock to black and roll yeah like they're very different things but it feels like it should be what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. When you say death rock, you think, oh, is it like, is it like rock and roll entombed? <laughs> is there and a that's death more and roll? Black and roll is <laughs> black and roll is more in that line of like black and roll is weird. It's also yeah, like death and roll is a genre. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Weird. So entombed, Wolverine Blues, yeah, Black oh, Rock. Okay. I could see that. I could see it. So it's just more like hardcore and influenced <laughs> death <Yeah>. metal than <laughs> Le- um, yeah, less technical than most of the death bands. Yeah. Well, before we get into the record we chose, let's look at all of our spooky genres combined for the year of 1985. So these are the records that have either the genre or the subgenre of horror, punk, gothic rock, psychobilly, or death rock tagged on rate your music for the year 1985. And I already have like a bone to pick with the first one like <laughs> they've put jesus and mary chain psycho candy on here is it really gothic rock as a sub influence it's not really like there's a there's a uh, dyed black hair leather jacketness to them that i guess like they look like a gothic rock band like if you put them next to all the other bands in that same genre you could i could see being like oh yeah they're they're, they're the same thing right it's like, but they're not really I don't. Yeah, the teased up black hair. What songs, though? Like, The Living End? In a Hole? Like, uh, I don't know. They see it, but is it really substantial enough? It's one of those ones where it's, uh, it's, you know, it's stuck in the secondary, so. Yeah. Is it worth even voting on it? We could decide on it right now, though. Uh, Do you want to go down vote it? It is, it is currently voted for 43 and voted against 43. So uh, how strongly do we feel? about? <laughs> you want to do this, this live on air? Let's see. Let's see if us voting on it takes it out of the running. Uh, where's <laughs> someone where's... saying C86 and Twee need a secondary on you? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> it is not Twee. <laughs> Love just a, a secondary genre selection of rock. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That tells you literally anything. All right. I'm going to vote against Gothic Rock. I don't think it's there. I don't think there's enough of a enough of a case for it. Ooh, I may have taken it out of the running already. Yeah. You, you should have. It's It was down to uh, one vote, but I'll go ahead and tip it a little further. 
this is thrilling radio. <laughs> There's what a contentious genre box this is, though. <laughs> this album. Yeah. So I took uh, it off of its main page. It won't reflect in the charts for a couple days, so yeah. it'll still be there. But I next week we'll see if the Psycho Candy is still featured as the number one. Someone will someone will go fix it. Pe- yeah. These people watch the genre changes. Yeah. Uh, also contentious. Uh, bone bone to pick with uh, the Sonic Youth and the Fall records that are three of the top five. Yeah. On this chart for this year. Which maybe goes to show, is there that much goth rock going on in 85? I mean, Dead Can Dance, that certainly counts. Yeah, Dead Can Dance definitely falls under. The Cure is like the actual number, like, it's the number two overall, but it's like the most actual goth rock. Even then, like, The Cure are a band that I've, <laughs> I've always been okay with letting them be called goth rock, but they're also like so much more just like post-punk and new wave, really, than anything. Well, they're kind of a band that I think of as an exemplary gothic rock band, but they're only secondary tagged gothic rock on here. So I don't know. Maybe I don't know goth rock. (laughs) Well, there is a Sisters of Mercy record on here, the first and last and always, like pure gothic rock record. No questioning that one there. Uh, We have a Killing Joke record, Nighttime. Killing Joke is one that I feel like is kind of like The Cure, where it depends on the record, if whether they're going to be considered gothic rock. But I could see this one being strongly in that vein. What about a Chameleons record? This one's got it as like an actual genre tag too. Chameleons it's, are generally associated with goth rock. This one's probably one of the more overtly goth rock records. I don't know their albums super well. I don't know how much I can weigh in on it, but it's I don't know how much of a uh, how much of a Doors influence is there. <laughs> that's that side door to goth rock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have Legacy Brutality by the Misfits. A compilation, not an album, but whatever. Unreleased material. Unreleased material, yep. This is probably the first appearance of a lot of that static age material for it, people. This is, this is one of those compilations being counted as an album albums that I, I don't hate it too much because in the 80s, this, was, this really was new material. Yeah, uh, like when it came out, it it certainly would have been people would have known what it was, that it was a collection of unreleased material, but people would have treated it as an album. I think most people for a long time thought of it as an album just because you couldn't get most of these songs anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, hindsight with Static Age, you know, archival being released makes this more of a comp, but. Good old clan of Zymox can always be trusted to show up on these charts. <laughs> yeah. I was like, why is there? Why does it feel like there's always a clan of Zymox record on these? Um, because clan of Zymox have 21 records, according to Ray Music. So that's why they're always around. <laughs> that is a band that has not stopped. Let me see. Can I find the longest stretch of time between a clan of Zymox record? <laughs> 85 to 86, 86 to 89, 89 to 91, 91, 92, 92, 93. Okay, so 93 to 97, four years. Hmm. Wow. That's the longest stretch. Four years. Four years between releases. That's not a very long stretch. Wow. I mean, they, there's stuff in there like archival and remixes and stuff, but they put something out at least every minimum three years. Yeah. So if you don't count the early demos, 2015 record 
it's still only three years between <laughs> the 2014 and 2017 record. Wow. Good for them, I guess. It's probably one dude, right? Uh, Ronnie Moorings, vocals and guitars, our only permanent member, it looks like. We had a bassist from 81 to 91, a keyboardist from 81 to 91. A lot of 97 to question mark members. 97 to present. Oh. Um, bass player there. But a couple of different names currently listed. So, yeah, yeah it's Ronnie Moorings band. Yeah. Good for Ronnie. Oh, here we go. Phantasmagoria by The Damned was released in 1985. There we go. You, why does no one call The Damned a, a horror punk band? They No one does. No one ever says they're a horror punk band, except for until you get to Phantasmagoria and people are like, now they're a goth rock band. <laughs> Black Album has a secondary genre for that, and so does yeah. I think Strawberries. But yeah, nobody ever was like, horror punk. It's like, well. Well, we've got an album of mostly evil clown music. <laughs> um, I love Machine Gun Etiquette, but it's like we got some clown music, we got circus ass shit, we've got singing about anti pope, Plan Nine. Singing is about it the because movie. Captain Sensible is in the band and he like removes any goth cred that you get? <laughs> uh, even Melody Lee, what's that song is about? Broken man and a broken dream. Uh, your life was cruel. They called it art. Pretty morose. Yeah, truly not. They did too much. um other stuff i guess that determines our uh, that answers our uh what percentage of (laughs) of horror punk songs like lyrically we gotta look at damn damn damned the machine gun etiquette and be like all right it's less than 50 percent, so that's why it's not horror punk (laughs) and i guess the other big notable we have a love and rockets record seventh dream of teenage heaven and then there's like the names you see all the time (laughs) tuxedo moon new model army Alien Sex Fiend. Alien Sex Fiend are probably like just like Clan of Zymox, who are just like, yep, always got a record out that's uh they have eighteen records, so they yep. are another one. <laughs> they got more sparse once they passed the nineties, but Crime and City Solution. Gene loves Jezebel. I guess they're another there. one that's around. Oh yeah. This exploited record actually has Death Rock as a secondary genre. It's called Horror Epics and it's got like is that a Dracula on the cover? It is. So there we go. Which is very funny that it's not just called a horror punk record because <laughs> the Exploited are a UK band. They are not connected at all to the LA death rock scene of the mid 80s. Yeah. We do have a Faidia, the Japanese death rock record this year. Oh, and we got a Play Dead uh, record as well. Company of Justice. They're goth there, band. Yeah, there's an Oz Gang record. Flesh for Lulu's out there. Also, Flesh for Lulu. I've listened to some other Flesh for Lulu. They are barely gothic rock, too. <laughs> yeah. Definitely more, like, psych influence. You got the Meteors, too. I guess we hadn't really seen much psychobilly stuff, but the Meteors have a record. No cramps this year, so. <laughs> we got Guanabats, though. Hold down at last. Shockabilly. All right. I think we've killed enough time trying to avoid getting Hey, Southern culture on the skids. Self-titled record was released in 1985. That's fun. Uh, First album, right? It is. Yeah. Old Chapel Hill band. They have a song called Psycho Surfing on it. That's probably what gives it the and Demon Death. There. There's your yeah. s- slight tip into Psycho Billy. But Adam H. Trucker. I think that's uh, that might count. <laughs> I dig tunnels. Primitive guy. Yeah, you could stretch a lot of these, I think. All right, so the album we actually did select to discuss, uh, we had both tagged it 
as something that we would want we would potentially want to talk about. So I think because we both tagged it was why we went, yeah, let's do this one. So we are talking about Love by the Cult. Stats on the band originally formed as the band Death Cult in 1983. They're from Bradford, West Yorkshire, England. And this is the band's second full-length album following 1984's Dreamtime. And was released October 18th, 1985 on Beggar's Banquet. And the person on this record is Jamie Stewart on bass, keys, and strings. Mark Brzezinski on drums. William H. Duffy on guitars and Ian Asbury on vocals. And the album is produced by Steve Brown, who previously worked with Wham! and the Boomtown Rats prior to this record. <laughs> so I've got some other other kind of stuff on here that uh, we'll get to later. But what are the earliest memories, thoughts, feelings on the cult that you have? Hmm. I'm trying to think of where I would have known a cult song. They on a soundtrack because I know the song like I know she sells sanctuary. I know that song like Mm -hmm. that's something that I've heard, but I don't know if that's a like an algorithm playlist or you hear it somewhere kind of song or if it's from something. Huh. So you don't have like distinct memories of the any of the cults music prior to, I don't know, adulthood. Mm -mm. No, not really. I, I really I mean, I wouldn't have known who they were as a kid, but I, so, not even like not even as a teenager. I don't think that like I really became aware of them as a band. I wouldn't have heard if I had heard multiple songs by them. I would not have connected the dots that it was the same band. I wouldn't have known who the songs were by. I wouldn't have known of them as a band, like as an entity, as like a, you know, an influential or, you know, successful band. I I cannot pinpoint any point where I became aware of the cult. Hmm. Very much seems like a band whose name I've just read a thousand times <laughs> over the years and been able to, by association, categorize them. But I knew what they sounded like before we talked, picked them to talk about. 
So yeah. at some at some point I heard something and I knew it was them. Hmm. Not even Firewoman, like their most famous song, Firewoman. <laughs> yeah, like I I would have heard that song, but I don't know where I would have heard it. Like I don't know. That's why I'm like, is that on a soundtrack? <laughs> you would have heard it on the radio for like yeah. a decade is where you would have heard it. Yeah. So okay, my my cult memories are 100% tied to the radio. Uh, growing up, we had a radio station out of Charlotte called The End, 106.5 The End. And they would, it was mostly an alternative rock state. Is Yeah, alternative rock, I guess is what you would describe it. Came to existence probably in like 1993 when all the grunge radio stations started to pop up. So it was primarily grunge stuff, hard rock, 90s rock stuff, and then, you know, evolved into like all the other stuff. But whenever you start a station off of like, just one style of music you have to kind of go back in time and play stuff so the cult was a band from the 80s who got played on the modern rock station they weren't they didn't get played on the classic rock station they were they were guess too weird to be on the classic rock stations but yeah the cult were on 106.5 and firewoman played all the time rain played all the time the other one you mentioned she uh something something what's the name of that song <laughs> she sells sanctuary she sells sanctuary that's a terrible name for a song all three of those songs played on the radio. There was actually a DJ on the on the radio station, Kristen. That was her name. She was a DJ for a long time on 1065. She typically did the the drive time show and I distinctly remember her saying The Cult is her favorite band. Hmm. And that's probably why they they got so much rotation maybe in in their playlist cuz she was one of the, like the DJs who was there for so long. Um probably involved with their programming, yeah. Yeah. Like there were a handful of DJs like that because she like co-hosted. It was like a drive time show. So they would like talk about music. So I also distinctly remember her being a Smiths fan, too. Like mm. she and they didn't play that. They played a little Smiths, but not much. How soon is now? I feel like that's yeah. like the only one I remember. And then like one of the Morrissey singles. Yeah, got played a lot, too. So I guess she she tapped into that kind of like side of that was maybe her personal preference in music and stuff like that. But yeah. So that that's kind of how I became aware of like the cult over the years is through the radio, specifically that station playing those three songs. But I do remember they came back with a record in like 2002 or something like that. And they like put out a new single. It was like a failure. The record was a failure. It didn't do well. But I remember there being like a new cult song that they played around that time. It probably didn't make it out of like a month of rotation, but I even remember that kind of like premiering on the station. So, I tie that that band to that radio station in the 90s primarily. Hmm. So that's that's my connection there, I guess, to. Uh, yeah, I never I never cult. paid attention to who the songs were by. Yeah, when those when those songs played, I definitely heard them tons, but I never really they never did enough for me that I was like going to really pay attention to who they were by. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd never listened to a record by them. I just knew the couple of songs. So it definitely was um, a band that I'd always been like, I liked those songs, those singles. And there's always a part of me that was like, I should check out the cult, see if I actually like them. And so that was kind of my motivation for nominating this record for us to uh, to listen to. Yeah, I saw this one on the charts. I was trying to do kind of a a little more of a random poll. And I this was one of the ones that I landed kind of on a random page and was like, hey, that record, I that could be one. So when you suggested it, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's that was on my radar to talk about. Uh, it also happens to be that we're recording this uh, <laughs> episode on the 
on the week of the anniversary of its release. It was released on October 18th, 1985. Mm -hmm. We're recording this on the 19th. So, yeah. And actually, I was listening to the album on the 18th. And then I read, I was listening to the record and I read that and I was like, oh, what's today's day? Oh, it's today. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, I I, I told you that too. And you're like, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that post. Uh, I saw they posted about it, I guess. And then it just got likes on Twitter or something somewhere. Instagram or something popped up in my feed. Yeah. I was like, well, that's good timing. Um, this will be on people's minds. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess there's a little, little background going on. They did release a record called Dreamtime in 1984. The prior to the record coming out, She Sells Sanctuary was a single in the UK. It hit number 15 in the UK charts. And so this was before they even went into the studio to record for the album. And in fact, uh, the original drummer of the band, Nigel Preston, he performs on She Sells Sanctuary. He has a credit on the record as well. So they just used the single track version, it sounds like. Um, But he is uh, fired. From the cult by this time due to his unreliable nature and he's having a a drug problem that he never gets over and unfortunately passes away from in 1992. So but he basically was just like, we can't rely on him. He can't, you know, we got to move on without him, basically. So they enlisted Mark Brzezki. It's hard to say that name. It's B-R-Z-E-Z-I-C-K-I. Uh, yeah, who was the drummer for the band Big Country, as well as a session drummer. So for this record, he just is like lending a hand because they had actually toured with Big Country. And so that kind of they're just like, hey, you, you're a session guy. You know, we know you. We play with you. Will you play on this record? So um, I will say drumming on this record is very good. And I totally get why he would be like a session type musician because it's really good drumming. And so I definitely noticed his performance on here. I was like, that's that's a great drummer. So, yeah. Yeah. Big Con- it's funny that it's the guy from Big Country because mm-hmm. um, I saw a quote from someone in the cult, probably around the time of this record, kind of in the 80s, where they described themselves as being a bit like you 2 in Big Country, but better. You know, listening to the album, there was a piece of me going, there's a little big music in here. Yeah. Just a little, little dash of it there. Uh, yeah. So let's let's talk about that for a second. What kind of band are they really? Like, if we really think about what kind of music they're playing, they're tagged like post punk and gothic rock on this album. There's not very much post punk in here for me. No. So this album, the whole time I'm listening to it, I'm I keep thinking they really put the rock and gothic rock. <laughs> yeah. This is a rock band. This yeah. is bordering on hard rock, which is where they go. Like Firewoman. Yeah. This is just a rock. That's like a that's like a Rick Rubin produced. Mm-hmm. I think he did that record. He he did he did a record with them and Bob Rock did another record. Like yeah. two records with them. So like they went from this to the Wham guy to Rick Rubin and Bob Rock. So like yeah, they definitely were leaning into the we're a hard rock band. That is our sound. But this is a hard rock record, really. Like, it's barely a post-punk. There's no post-punk on here at all. Yeah, Sonic Temple was produced by Bob Rock. Um, Yeah. 
ceremony is Richie Zito. When did they do? They did something with Rick Rubin at some point. So was it the '87 record? Yeah, they and they. Oh yeah. After this record, they go to California. They leave yeah. England <laughs> after so, this record. So Electric is the album after is the one that Rick Rubin does. And yeah, yeah, you can definitely see. So it's like, is Danzig considered goth rock? <laughs> so okay, listening to this record, I was like, so Danzig just ripped this off, right? Like Rubin had just worked with the cult and then is like hey uh danzig here's your new band i found you a new band uh (laughs) 88 you're gonna sound like the cult now yeah what all right because vocally they do have like similar qualities to their voices ian asbury and danzig yeah very powerhouse rock vocals yeah uh but yeah and even like so like this record it's riffy driving it's it's very singable and anthemic at times like it's not a not really what i associate with goth rock in the 80s no and i haven't heard the first record so i don't know exactly how much that album maybe fits closer to that sound but with this and like everything they did after it it's such a big rock record that like i don't know it's not that I guess thinking about it and thinking about what other like hard rock was happening at this time, we're not actually, that would be a good, that would be a good test. Let's see what the uh, hard rock albums of 1985 are. And I want to see how similar or how different we are, because actually I can't picture what hard rock sounds like in 1985. Uh, Well, hair metal, I guess. Right. Like it's, it's metal. It's, it's I'm still thinking of metal, which is not really hard rock. Motley Crue and Kiss. Um, yeah, we've got Motley Crue's Theater of Pain, Wasp, The Last Command. I mean, then you got like ZZ Top and ACDC, but that's like the the primitive version of hard rock. Uh, you got Bon Jovi, Dokken. See, it's very metal still. Rat, Kiss, yeah, Pantera. ACDC, well, in excess, there's your kind of big, ro- uh, your big music rock similarity. Uh, ACDC is... I think that's a fair one. They're pretty, uh, they're pretty influenced by ACDC. They they name drop ACDC as an influence. Uh, they kind of really talk about, as far as what I've read, they talk about like going through all of their music discographies and like they 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 seem to be a band that has a pretty open mind in terms of influences. So there's there's a big continuum from like Zeppelin to ACDC to whatever else was going on in the eighties and in, in U two. And they're kind of, they're kind of putting, they are kind of putting some different sounds together in an, in a different way. Cause it is hard to, to pinpoint a rock band in 85 playing these kinds of riffs and these kinds of songs with this kind of production and image for sure.
it feels pretty ahead of its time. Like it does the bands that I listed there that they are contemporaries of. They don't really have much in common with them. They didn't have that much in common with the other goth bands that we mentioned. They really do have more in common with like some of the later 80s stuff like your like Danzig. So, yeah, they're very I guess they were kind of ahead of the game when it came to this kind of sound because it's big. It, there's barely any punk here. It's very rock based. The gothic element is probably coming from more like the imagery and the design and the. Well, and there's loads of chorus and echo. On here. Yeah. I mean, the guitars. Yeah, we said big music. The guitars are all shimmery, jangly when they're not riffy. There's a lot of there's a fair amount of Susie and they talk about being influenced by Susie as well uh, because of because of the guitar work in Susie and the Banshees particularly. So I, I definitely see that influence in their guitar playing. It's just taking that they're taking like certain guitar styles and sounds from those bands and then combining it with something else, which is cool. It's interesting and it certainly makes them unique. It makes them stand out in this time period but it is uh the gothic part of this is is very lyrically and aesthetically driven yeah out of curiosity i was looking up what else was going on with beggar's banquet around this time period and so along with the cult they also had flesh for lulu and gene loves jezebel yeah who are probably Sonically, actually, kind of close. Now that I really think about it, because what I was saying that what is this Flesh for Lulu has like the psychedelic element to their sound too. Yeah. And the Cult definitely has that like we like the Doors. Yeah. Thing going on with their sound too. So it actually kind of does make a little bit more sense within the context of those other bands. So we're in like a transitionary period in Gothic rock that's kind of like leaning away from. I guess it's like a diverging path situation because like this is the same time period where like dark wave and neoclassical is like becoming its own segment of goth and then like the harder rocking goth stuff going the other way, probably ultimately forming goth metal in the future. So, yeah, there's definitely. Yeah. 85 might just be like, yeah, a, a diverging paths of goth rock. We're going we're going in two directions. We're going towards arena or we're going towards dank clubs. <laughs> yeah. pick your pick your path you can't be in the middle so this album also features uh backing vocals by a group called the sultanas who are a vocal group who would appear on songs from various artists but the two most notable being captain sensible and nina hagen so those <laughs> would be who else they would work with in that solo captain sensible where he's just a weirdo <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay. I, we really haven't really talked about the actual record. So, what did you think of it? What is, is it good? Is it bad? What did you think? It is an album. It is an album that I can finish listening to. <laughs> I will say it is an album that took me two attempts to finish. I did not finish it on the first listen. I did do diligence and start it from the beginning of the second time. I didn't just pick up where I left off. So, to <laughs> its credit, it was a good enough record to listen to one and three quarters times, um, which is probably it is probably a decent, good record. If I'm being more uh, generous to it, I was just n at no point thrilled by it. <laughs> so I listened to it three times. Uh, the first time was with only one earbud in and while I was at work. 
I do that a lot. That is my just like let me get let me get a basis on what it is thing. I do that at work a lot. Just listen to them. It's how musicians love all their music to be uh, absorbed in one earbud. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, we need to do the mono hard pan mix. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess mono would. Yeah, we need would, to bring back mono same, for those wait, people who either. just walk around with one earbud in all the time with something playing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you have to consider mono too because of how many people listen to. I've actually there actually is a little bit of a talk about mono mixing in um, considerations for mixing now because of how often people listen to music on single source speakers, like single speakers, uh, you know, little portable Bluetooth speakers or like sound bars where the sound oh, is yeah. concentrated in like a single point. So there is a lot of like kind of checking things in mono to like make sure you're not losing things. Things aren't getting phased out or, you know, squashed and weird sounding when you when you switch to mono. So, yeah, there's there's an argument to be had, at least to like make it so that your mix doesn't yeah, isn't ruined by a mono. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, this is unlistenable. Oh, but no. Yeah, no. <laughs> Listening to a classic stereo mix uh, in one headphone uh, is not a good <laughs> Yeah. Now, obviously, when I do my notes listening to the record, I do the full headphone situation. And then I do. uh, And again, today, while I was getting ready for the show, I was like, I need to give it one more listen because it's kind of a hard record to get into. I feel like the two singles. I was like, hell, yeah, I know Rain and She Sells Sanctuary. I know these songs back to front to back. These songs are fucking awesome because I've heard them a million times on the radio. B side of the record. They are both on the B side. That's right. Revolution was also a third single, and that is also on the B side. It's after She Sells Sanctuary, I believe. Before. She Sells is like second. Oh, it's after Rain or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was like another song that was. Oh, Nirvana was chosen as like a a European single in like the Netherlands only or something like that. I guess they were going to tour there and they were like, "Eh, let's throw a song out there. See if it takes up ticket sales are kind of soft. Maybe we should throw out another single over there. Let's throw a, I know, let's throw a five and a half minute song. <laughs> so the whole A side of the record is I'm listening to it. I'm like, yep, it sounds like those occult songs I know. Like every song on this record sounds like it's from this band. <laughs> this sounds like I, I could have, you could have put any one of these songs on before I'd ever heard the record. And I would have gone, is this a cult song? And I would have, I would have been right. Um, and I don't know if those singles are the ones that just like, just because I've heard them so much, that's why they stood out to me as being such strong songs. Because none of the other songs really stood out to me as like super memorable or even just like great. Like those songs have really big hooks and choruses. And I don't know that the other songs on here have that. Nirvana, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Nirvana, maybe. It's a slow burn, though. It takes a long time to get there. I guess Big Neon Glitter has a weird like guitar part to that song, but there is like a solid chorus there. But then like, I, can you tell me what Hollow Man sounds like, really? Or Revolution? <laughs> it's got that riff to it. That's about it. Phoenix has that weird um, the wah intro, which is like, hey, is this the Stooge? Are you listening to the Stooges? Because this is what this sounds like. Yeah, probably. Sounds like TVI. It's an interesting one, too, because it sounds almost like this is did you two then like this is a band that's kind of ripping on you two a little bit. But then also sounds like a band that you two would rip from later. 
Because <laughs> it sounds a little bit like some later U2. Okay, here's... This is going to be a... Follow me here. Did the cult sound like R.E.M. to you? Uh... Not this record really. No. Well, okay. I see. Okay, I see where you're getting at. Mm-hmm. Especially on what Brother Wolf, Sister Moon, and like Black Angel. There's a jangle. There's def- yeah. there's a definite jangle on this record. But I also just attribute that to the Smiths, really. Yeah. They're UK. Which, speaking of the Smiths, wasn't one of them in a band? Oh, there is a connection with Morrissey. There's a Morrissey connection. There's a connection. I I read this. There's also a Danzig connection too. Yeah. Let's see if I could find that connection too. I will say the Wikipedia for the cult is very detailed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thorough. If you we're not going to do the whole story of of the cult, but it's there's a lot to read. <laughs> yeah. I was like, man, this thing just goes on, doesn't it? Let's see if I can find it. In 83, Asbury teamed up with guitarist Billy Duffy and formed the band Death Cult. Duffy mm. had been in the Nosebleeds with Morrissey. That's the connection there. Yes. And the Nosebleeds also included uh, Vinnie Riley of the Duruddy column. So there's also like another connection in here. I cannot find it exactly where what it was, but someone in the band also played in another Rick Rubin like produced thing that had chuck biscuits in it too oh and um, it it was right before danzig too like the 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 danzig was formed as a band the album version of rain as well as the remix uh here comes the rain were used in the italian horror film demons 2 (laughs) yeah yeah we should have watched demons 2 then then a master punk theater it's very funny to put the cult in a horror movie to me though yeah it's one of those weird some of those Argento movies, like Phenomena, has a bunch of like soundtrack songs in it. There's like Goblin stuff, but there's also like soundtrack songs in yeah. it. Yeah, and it and they're like very poorly placed. Like, <laughs> it's like it doesn't work. It takes you right out. Phenomena is such a hard movie to watch. <laughs> I assume Demons Two is probably similar. Those later '80s Argento movies are not great. So I hear the jangle. Uh, that's probably where that post-punk sound count. Uh, so, that's probably where that post-punk sound comes from. Because, like you said, there is the record prior to this that was a bigger yeah. hit in England. They actually had like a UK indies hit song off of that record too. So yeah, I could see that being that's your connection there. And there's like I said, there's a little jangle here. So that that kind of puts you in that same world. Well, and Spotify played a, an REM song. Immediately after <laughs> auto played an REM song and I was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that to work so well. <laughs> what uh, what REM is around in 85? Is that document or is that murmur? Maybe what year's murmur? Murmur's 83's fables, fables. and reconstructions, the 85 record. Yeah. So, yeah, they would have been around, too. Yeah. Driver eight was on the rock charts mm-hmm. mentioned earlier.
so listening to this, I was like, I just want to hear Firewoman. Like, I just kept like, like, yes, Rain and She Sells Sanctuary are great singles, too. But then when I hear those, I'm like, and Firewoman. Play that one next. Oh, wait, that's not written for a couple years. Okay, fine. Uh, but I definitely was like, is the cult a singles band? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, there's a there is a consistency to this record. If you want to hear a pretty broad encapsulation of guitar effects in the 80s, this is a good one because there's lots of stuff. There's wah, there's echo, there's chorus there's it it's it's a good sounding record i think the drums are super well played i think a lot of the guitar playing is good and interesting it's not super showy or anything like that but it's it's solid and it's thought out and it's it's a good balance of playing guitar and playing effects that's probably the strongest point of the record for me but the songs themselves other than a handful they don't they never once grabbed my attention. Yeah. I never wanted to to know which song was playing. <laughs> Other than like on repeat listen, I was like, oh, this is Brother Wolf, Sister Moon, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was the one where I was like, that's a Danzig song. That that just felt like a Danzig song about wolves. Like that, that there's definitely like five of those in the Rick Rubin discography era. <laughs> Which I definitely think that Rubin was like, hey, do you like this cult sound? Because we can do this, you know. Danzig probably listened to this record. Probably. Because uh, this would have, like you said, this would have been during Samhain. Yeah. So there's a chance he heard this record and then was like, I want to do that. Yeah. Give me Rick Rubin. No, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> That's a weird combination of personalities. <laughs> Glenn Danzig and Rick Rubin. Yeah, I still. Yeah. That's it's not still, a match made in heaven. It's a weird. It's it's. They're going to butt heads, like, for sure. Yeah, that's why they stopped working. Yeah. But they did four records. They seem like they wouldn't have done two. <laughs> Maybe Danzig was a little bit more uh, amending to his uh, recommendations than the first record. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to do industrial now. Ah, oh, Jesus, Danzig. Nobody wants that from you. I want to make it so you can't hear me. You sound like Elvis. <laughs> That's the that's it. That's the genre. That's your music. You sound like Elvis. <laughs> yeah, Rick Rubin. Uh, I don't even I don't even know how to operate a soundboard um, <laughs> with Danzig thinking that he knows how to <laughs> do things that he doesn't like compose yeah. classical music. Danzig always says that he uh, I wrote all the songs. It's like, you, you did you? <laughs> Did you write all the songs? I don't hear you writing those riffs that uh, John Christ or whatever his name was writing. You wrote the songs and they did something else with them. (laughs) Yeah. So the cult, like we said, there's so much to read about them. And I did not expect that. I did not expect them to have such a lengthy career, such a storied career. Tons of session musicians, uh, which tells me that the main dudes in the cult are insufferable. Yeah, Ian and Billy, there are the two primary members of the band who have been there from the beginning and are still there now because they're still together. Yeah, um, they have broken up multiple times, which I found interesting. So right after for tour support for this record, they brought in Les Warner 
to play drums, who played with Julian Lennon and Johnny Thunders prior to this. So I think Which Johnny cool because they name job Johnny Thunders. Yeah, they a were lot in, too. They were very heavily influenced by him. So yeah, they would then, like I said, move to California. They would work with Rick Rubin, Bob Rock, put out a bunch of records. And then in 1995, they broke up due to rising tensions, which is just the two of them. So it's just like these two guys were getting mad at each other. I think to me, it feels like they were like they were losing the grunge battle. They were like they were trying to still be the cult while grunge was like a huge thing. And that just like audiences weren't like responding to it anymore. But then they would get back together in 1999 and then put out another album that performed so poorly they broke up again. So they were trying to <laughs> put out a record in the new metal era too, and it wasn't working. And then they were reunited in 2006, and then have continued to kind of just release music since ever since. So it they had they had to get through the changing of the sounds to really, I guess, kind of make it as a group. They well, they had to get to the point where audiences would be nostalgic. Yeah. They had to get to the point where they could then tour primarily on the hits, tour on the old material. They're touring now on like Southern Death Cult or not Southern Death Cult, uh, which was the prior band. Yeah. Funny how they went from Southern Death Cult to Death Cult to Cult. So they're they're touring now on Cult, Death Cult stuff and like first two Cult albums. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they it seems like. As far as like I can read between the lines, they needed to keep making money (laughs) and they weren't doing it playing the cult because I think they stick to a pretty consistent sound as far as I could tell. I don't know if you saw this in their Wikipedia, but in 1990, Ian Asbury organized a festival called Gathering of the Tribes Festival. In L.A. and Los Angeles and San Francisco. And it was artists such as Soundgarden, Ice-T, Indigo Girls, Queen Latifah, Iggy Pop, The Charlatans, The Cramps, and Public Enemy. (laughs) So Ian Asprey is like, I'm going to put together a festival and it's going to be me and it's going to be Soundgarden and it's going to be a bunch of rappers and it's going to be The Cramps. And it's just like it drew 40,000 people. It's a two day festival. I wonder if we could find that. Gathering of the Tribes. Oh, there's a Wikipedia page for that specifically. Organized by Ian Asbury and promoter Bill Graham in October of 1990. And it's considered to be the precursor to the Lollapalooza Touring Festival. So it does have a very similar feel to that. Like, it's a mix of different stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, this sounds like Lollapalooza. Uh, All of those, most of those, well, not the Cramps, but all of those other people, I'm pretty sure, played uh, ensuing Lollapaloozas. The event was intended to raise money for and awareness of Native American-related causes. Oh, that's a thing, too. That's the, a whole thing. The cult yeah. are obsessed with Native American uh, imagery, well, culture. Well, he, Ian is. Ian, Ian Asbury. Specifically is. So Ian, kind of interesting guy. He's one of those, yeah, the Southern Death Cult name. That's a that's a reference to specific indigenous tribes and, and uh, rights. Which he took that to then apply to the concentration of political power in the southern UK. Yeah. Kind of a really interesting, like, 
too elaborate of a band name. Yeah, it, it, here's the here's word for word how it's written. It's derived from the academic term Southern Death Cult, used to describe a cluster of 14th century Native American groups now classified as the Southeastern Ceremonial Complex. That was probably white people who chose that name above. Um, yeah. The name Southern Death Cult was also inspired by what the band viewed was the centralization of political and economic power in Southern England, including the power of the music industry. There has long been a perceived notion of a UK North-South divide based on social, historic, and economic reasons. So, like, the original band is just like, we're a commentary on (laughs) politics and natives, too? So, Ian, born in the UK... His dad was English. His mom was Scottish. He moved to Canada as a kid. He lived in, I want to say, I just read it earlier today. He lived in Ontario uh, for a while. I'm not sure how long he lived there as a kid. And he, so he talked about going there and being seen as a foreigner and so he talked about mostly hanging out with immigrant kids and indigenous kids. And he talks, there's this like very formative story that he tells about going on some sort of field trip and seeing the native kids uh, playing lacrosse. And he was like, I'm in school. They're not in school. And then he like wanders away from the from the field trip group. And starts hanging out with native kids and he tells he like mentions sitting down next to like an old native man smoking a pipe. And he's like, I feel like I belong. So he had some kind of like weird (laughs) mystical experience as a kid with (laughs) native people and has then like spent the rest of his life obsessed with uh, Native American cultures. As it's got a kind of like weird, like hippie, like we must we should listen to the native people because they're more in tune with the earth. I'm like, (laughs) they're also just human beings. Let's chill (laughs) out a little bit. But then he's also like he's like really well informed and is like extremely vocally supportive of indigenous causes and it's it's in the neil young category of like this uh this is a little appropriative dude but <laughs> you also like genuinely appreciate and like understand like what has happened to yeah. these peoples and you're like very anti-colonial and so it's like all right this doesn't have to be your thing does it Yeah, <laughs> it's just like all over the records too like imagery like there's the photo too of of, like the kid on ceremony is the record and like wasn't used with like permission or something like that and yeah there's a lawsuit around that photo and like love has like these kind of like native imagery on the album cover they had songs like spirit walker and like horse what's that song called horse nation yeah and like there's stuff like verbatim taken from bury my heart at wounded knee yeah. Uh, Spirit Walker is specific Australian Aboriginal beliefs is what that one's influenced by. But then there's like a song called like Go West on that record. And yeah, it just it's just kind of like Bro- Brother Wolf, Sister Moon. Yeah, right. So it's just like always there. So it's interesting that that that's such a kind of reminded me how too of how like Adamant used like native like dress and 
makeup too and his yeah but then like there's like a story of him like going to like these native tribes and like getting permission to do it too and we'll always have a story of that i found a native person who said it was okay so that's why i think it's okay uh but it's um johnny depp yeah being allowed to do brown face because he found someone that he could give money to. That would... <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And they're a weird band, right? Like they're, they have weird, they have a weird career. They have a long career. There's like 11 records. At one point I was like, they'd be a good candidate for a challenge geography, but also I don't think I would want to do their entire discography. So <laughs> I would fail that challenge. I don't think I would get through all of them. Cause it's just like not enough there. Like not enough there for me to be like, I really like this. I like the overall feel and sound of the record, but like there's just not as much like distinctive, like individual tracks besides the ones that I already heard a ton of times that really, really stood out to me. Yeah. I was looking at their, um, I was looking at their social media earlier. Cause I was like, what are they into now? And Ian is still very much into, uh, indigenous cultures generally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think he's grown into a little bit more of a world uh, culture guy. It's very not malicious, but loves his wife. Big wife guy. Oh, all, is he still all wife guy? He, uh, I saw him, like, he posts very rarely on Instagram, but I think I saw, like, just in the matter of scrolling, I probably saw, like, three or four posts, like, happy birthday, my darling, Amy. Amy Nash. Yeah, been married since 2012. She was in a band called The Black Rider, singer and guitarist there, Vegas band. I love this fact. He has played the amateur football team Hollywood United with Billy Duffy, Steve Jones, <laughs> and Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols. So he's got a little uh, amateur football team with. I don't, I don't see Steve running around that much though. <laughs> um, and Billy Duffy, um, as far as I can tell, uh just loves guitars <laughs> and manchester <laughs> so weird so ian asbury uh front of the short-lived band holy barbarians uh served as lead singer of writers of the storm a doors tribute band he was also offered the role of uh <laughs> of uh jesus christ jim morrison in the doors movie <laughs> but he he turned it down because he didn't like how he was being portrayed in the movie. Yeah. Uh, which that band also had Ray Manzarek, the tribute band, and Robbie Krieger of The Doors. Uh, then he replaced Rob Tyner on an MC5 reunion in 2005 or 2003, as well as several one-off guest performances. He's He did that record with uh, Boris, too, like the Japanese drone band. I don't know what that record sounds like either. It was an EP, I guess. Yeah. Interesting, interesting career. I think he just, he somehow managed to just be like, I'm a rock star for his whole life. Like that's, he's figured out a way to do that. And they pulled yeah. it off, I guess. Yeah. Good job. Good job, guys. Like, I mean, it's probably easy being a rock star when you're the only two like permanent members of the band. Yeah. And here we thought we weren't going to have enough to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Prior to recording, uh, Dylan sent me a text saying, uh, I hope you've got notes. <laughs> and my response was, oh, I was hoping you would have some notes. Because I guess there is enough. There was enough there to really flesh something out. But I think there's enough to talk about them. Yeah. The record, record itself, not as much. 
it's and it's like the classic one too. It's the one that everybody's like, this is the best one. This is the one with like the big special reissues and anniversaries and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know. To me, they're a three song band, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and one of them's not even on this record. <laughs> I don't know. Overall, I'd say the record is. You want to rate it? Let's rate it. Yeah. Gosh, what do I rate this? Like a three point two five. I would just give it a three. Solid three. The, the two five is really those two songs that I'm really like, carrying that extra quarter point. But yeah, it's fine. I don't get why it's as like well regarded. Is it a time and place thing? We're gonna a get time. yelled at. You think it? We're, you think we're getting yelled at? You think Ian Asbury's listening to us? Uh, Over under on Ian Asbury listening to the episode. <laughs> I hope not. He's, Ian, if you listened. <laughs> Uh, I, I really have no real beef with you. Uh, <laughs> please don't get mad that we didn't like your band that much. Um, I don't think you're comparable to Johnny Depp. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's a three. It's it was all right. It was it was all right. It's too long. Yeah, 51 minutes long record. Yeah, it's uh it's just a little too long and it just doesn't as decent as it sounds like. It sounds good. It does sound good. There's nothing yeah. about them that I don't like the sound of. Like, there was no song on here that I was like, ew. No, no. It just didn't hook me. Yeah, it's, um, I wonder, this could be a case, too, of, like, repeat listens maybe makes it better. Because I did listen, on the third listen, I was like, I liked it a little more than the first two times I listened to it. So, this could be a case of just, like, on the surface, there's too much sameness on some of these songs. And then once like you've repeated listened a few times, then it starts to really show its its, you know, unique parts to it. But you know who I think likes the cult a lot? Who? Um Ryan from Photocrim Coliseum. <laughs> yeah. I think he follows the cult account. Oh, maybe he follows uh Ian Asprey? Ian's account. He follows Ian's account from his personal account and the Photogram account. Hmm. Uh, interestingly, I don't think he follows the cult account. Ian but, Asbury um, on Photocrime win? But uh, Shelby Sinka follows the, <laughs> the cult account on Instagram. <laughs> Didn't he talk about, was that one of the bands that he mentioned that he was listening to? I don't remember. Uh, there was two bands that you said that he told you that he was listening to when they recorded Weapons. And I want to say it was the cult and... It was like a like a metal band. It was Japan, wasn't? Or was, J- J- was it Japan? Let's see if I can pull that up. Mm. Yeah, it was Japan. Oh, it was the Cult. I was listening to yeah. the Cult and the first two albums by Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I can see that the guitars especially. <laughs> yeah, there's cool stuff on the record, but overall, yeah, just didn't didn't hook me. That's really the weakest weakest part of it. Lack of a hook, even though I like the overall feel and sound of the record so well that will wrap up our halloween spectacular hope you all had fun goofing around on some sub genres i don't know what we're gonna do next week we haven't really discussed what our next we might just revert to some uh original here's a year pick a record type stuff for a few weeks uh, we are getting closer to the end of the year so we'll see what uh what we come up with before we actually really get into the we'll probably do a christmas album at some point and a before we start our best of the year stuff. So, but uh, we got a couple weeks there before we get to that point. So 
hope you all have a great week. Uh, you can follow us all on social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, blue sky. We're on threads. I haven't looked at that thing in forever, but, um, I think blue sky is the thing that's going to be the one that sticks around, but also Twitter has like, they keep doing these things where they're like, now we're going to charge to do this. And now we're going to do that. And like it, I don't, nothing ever happens when they say they're going to do all this stuff. Like they never do it. So I don't know. And everybody's just still there. I mean, it's becoming unusable and it's breaking literally in front of our faces every single time you try and use it, but we're on there, but uh, yeah, I think that will do it. Everyone. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you next time. La 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 la